The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic. You can call me whatever you like. And uh, whatever you like and I uh, have this really nifty idea uh, where uh, we wanted to talk about Star Wars in a way that most people don't talk about Star Wars. Because most people talk about Star Wars in terms of... What happened in Star Wars? Or what will happen in Star Wars? Or wouldn't it be cool if How the Mandalorians it? fought the Wookiees? And that's not what interests us about Star Wars. What we love about Star Wars is its place in film history. And Star Wars itself is very much an amalgam of... Amalgam. Did I just do it again? You did it again. Oh my we, god. We had to start over because William mispronounced the word amalgam. I'm leaving but, uh, it in. I'm leaving my uh, shame in the, movie, <laughs> in, in the podcast. Uh, but anyway, Star Wars is an amalgam. Uh-huh. That's correct. Fine. Uh, of, uh, of the many influences of George Lucas and indeed all the other filmmakers who have worked uh, within the franchise. Uh, and as a result, you can actually learn a lot about film history by looking at Star Wars and working your way backwards. So we wanted to dedicate an entire podcast to exploring the many films that inspired Star Wars and judging them on their own merits and looking mm -hmm. at the way that George Lucas took one idea from this and spiraled it out into its own thing. Uh, we've already covered the Flash Gordon serials from the 1930s and Akira Kurosawa's samurai classic, The Hidden Fortress. And this week, we wanted to talk about a film that directly inspired the Death Star run at the end of the original Star Wars. Uh, it is considered a classic in Great Britain. In America, it is perhaps a little less well-known. It is a film called The Dam Busters! Come over here. I thought of a new idea. Mr. Wallace put forward a theory that's too fantastic to explain. Do you mean that a bomb can bounce along the water like a ping-pong ball? That's no good. It's too short. You're going to attack the great dams of Western Germany. Stand by, everyone. We're going in. It's got to be done at low level. It sounds a bit far-fetched. Looks impossible. If we can surprise them, then we'll play hell with them. But but no exclamation point. No, I just said that the for dam, fun. The Dam Busters. It, 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 uh, it kind of demands attention. Yeah. It's a it's a big title. It kind of has a curse word in it, but it doesn't have a curse word in the, it. The Dam Busters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a World War II film about an incredible uh, uh, achievement in aviation and uh, weapons design uh, that resulted in a significant, depending on who you talk to, 
military uh, uh, victory mm. over the Germans uh, on the part of the British, and we'll talk about that in great detail. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, long been pointed out by even people who have a, a passing familiarity with the histories and influences of Star Wars. Uh, that a lot of the final battle is dogfighting footage, like World War II dogfighting, World War One and World War II dogfighting footage. Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure Howard Hughes uh, was a great influence on uh, a lot of the dogfighting sequences. And There's a lot of documentary footage from yeah. World War II, in particular, of just cameras actually mounted in the actual like aerial choreography of the the biplanes that were flying around and shooting. And at each George other. Lucas has said that that was in particular a very specific influence, and he would watch that footage try to make it look as real and dynamic as possible because Star Wars, the original Star Wars, it looks pretty impressive, but it was actually relatively modestly budgeted and he had to make a little go a long way. So a lot of the original action sequence at the end of Star Wars A New Hope uh, is done more in editing than it is on screen. They're putting Mm -hmm. together shots that don't necessarily relate to each other, but you edit them together in such a right way. Well, you get the motion matching, you get the music swelling, mm-hmm. and it feels like this incredible cacophony, And even though it's not necessarily all the time. Well, and, it, and it was a really a wonderful special effects sequence in the, in, a, in the every tool in the box sort of thing. So there's rear projection and forward projection, and there's there mo- model work. Yeah, and- mo- models and miniatures and all the rest. Like every little bits of puppetry with cut in with live actors, so it all looked very impressive. But, uh, and sci-fi, like, science sticklers, like actual physicists, yeah. uh, will get hung up on this. First of all, they wouldn't make any noise in space, because there's nowhere in space. Yeah, that's uh, It would just sort of be, a- it would sound like this. Which is not interesting. <laughs> uh, and, uh, also... It would be very, very difficult to create a machine that could do those sort of aerial-type maneuvers in the vacuum of space. Of course. It's not a practical ship design. Of course, it's science fantasy. It doesn't really mm-hmm. matter what the te- how the technology operates. Sergio, but, get out uh, the counter, buddy. There's just like the uh, just like the Flash Gordon shorts and just like uh, Kurosawa, there is this kind of lingering cultural memory mm-hmm. Of World War Two and World War One dogfighting, right, and how war is supposed to look, and using that kind of cultural memory and a lot of those uh, old film reels that you were alluding to, to create uh, spaceship battles was a very ex- exhilarating thing to do. Yeah, a lot of science fiction before Star Wars came out was uh, either because of, either because it was hindered by a lack of imagination or a lack of money, mm. uh, felt very arch and relatively false, and George Lucas was very, very smart to take things that people already knew and recognized, whether it was a visual metaphor or the actual filmmaking language mm. of pre-existing movies or documentaries, in order to turn something something that by all rights we should have no connection to what's happening on screen nothing Mm. about this is something that could ever happen on earth but because it evokes the look and feel of world war ii movies again the empire is dressed like a whole bunch of nazis and they're Mm. building death machines with guns out of the guns of navarone which we might cover at some point as well um these are all ideas with which the audience especially in the 1970s when world war ii was a more recent memory was intimately familiar with mm. in its original, like undiluted form. So applying that in a fantasy setting was very, very smart. And what's interesting about the Dambusters is that, in many respects, the Dambusters is a typical World War II movie. It was actually made 
1955, mm-hmm. after the war had was had been over for about a decade. Uh, but it still got that incredible, uh, you know, a whole bunch of really smart, clever, brave people doing the unthinkable in order to stop the enemy from destroying our way of life. Mm. Uh, but the Dan Busters has a lot of very particular ideas in it that George Lucas would mine beyond the actual dogfight and beyond the actual climax itself. The idea behind the Dan Busters is based on a true story. And it's relatively accurate as movies go. There's stuff that they changed, uh, but uh, for the most part, the basics are right. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had the idea to stop Germany from being able to contribute to its war effort and cause a huge amount of damage to the country uh, by bombing the nation's largest dams. Three of them, to be precise. Yeah, there are three dams in particular, which if you blew these things up... Uh, it would potentially have a catastrophic effect on their infrastructure. Uh, they need water in order to produce steel for the war effort, well, and of like, course well, the flooding damage would be disastrous as well. Um, problem is, Germany knew that those dams were of strategic value, so they actually had them very well fortified, and there didn't seem to be any practical way to destroy them because they're gigantic and they're protected by large nets and guns. Some of them are not like on a straight path of the river. They're like sort of tucked in the mountains. Yeah. So it's difficult to achieve this and you can't just bomb them from the top because they're too strong and you need to get them from the bottom so that the water would actually crack through. And basically a scientist came up with an idea Mm. and I I think more than one person did, but you know, for the movie's purpose, scientist played Mm. by the great Michael Redgrave. Uh, The the name of the scientist to give him credit is named Barnes Wallace. Thank you. Barnes Wallace mm. uh, pioneered this idea, and it, it's based on other things that had happened in the military, and he even credits them in the, in the film, of instead of dropping a bomb directly from the top, we're going to skip it like a stone across the river so that it'll land where we want it to at the depth that we want it to. But in order to do that, A, we have to make a five-ton bomb that can actually skip across the ocean. <laughs> B, we have to fly lower than any airplane has been ever tried to fly before in time of war. And we have to release it at just the right time. At just the right distance. And exactly the right, the right distance every to, to, single time. To do it this three times with three different pilots doing it pretty much simultaneously. And it has to happen on a full moon when visibility is at its highest so that we can see, but they can also mm. see us. Wait, it so is this a is... maddeningly difficult task. Mm. And uh, and the way this film, The Dam Busters, directed by Michael Anderson, mm-hmm. not the actor. No. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about Michael Anderson yeah. in a second. Um, directed by Michael Anderson, the way it is filmed is one of the most exciting action films you've ever seen. Uh, I think because it's very much the mission. Yeah. Kind of film. Uh, there, there are certain movies that are about a specific mission, mm-hmm. or a spe- uh, even just a specific problem or, yeah, to be solved. Yeah. yeah, and those films are always really fun to watch because it's uh, really exciting to watch smart people use a lot of innovation to solve an interesting problem and then succeed. Uh, and it's re- always a bit of a downer <laughs> when we got to stop and deal with their personal lives. Key example of this in recent years, probably the closest analog to how the Dan Busters is structured, even mm. though it's a sci-fi film, The Martian. Yeah, there you go. The Martian puts Matt Damon, an astronaut, in an impossible situation. He's been marooned on Mars. This is not a time when Mars has been colonized. It's like the first manned mission to mm. Mars. 
No one in the history of the universe no has dead. ever been more screwed than that character. No one's going to come back for literally years and he's alive. And yeah. what is he going to do? What's he going to breathe? How's yeah. he going to eat? What's the plan? And the whole movie is about really smart people, Matt Damon and other people on Earth, who need to figure out a way to communicate with him. Right. Even after everything's broken. Uh, really smart people just trying to solve that impossible problem. And when it's done right, as it is in The Martian, mm. it's breathtaking. That is an exhilarating film. So great. And The Dam Busters is very much the same way. It's actually really cool when you look at this film structurally. Mm. Because the very first thing you see in this movie is someone walking up to Michael Redgrave's house. And mm. he is playing Already with the, working on the problem. Already yeah. working on the problem. First thing. And he talks about it in a conversation right afterwards. Also, his wife in that scene, Michael Redgrave's wife, wearing the Princess Leia buns. <laughs> from Star Wars Episode Four. It's subtle; you might not notice, but oh, she's you know wearing what? it. Oh, that slipped past. Me. Yeah, All yeah. Right. So George Lucas saw this film. Um, he's been open about it. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, so the first thing you see is him in his backyard. He's got this little, this little pool of water, and he's just trying to skip stones over just to see if the basic gist of the idea will work. And his kids are just sort of sitting there watching him do it. Yeah. They're kind of interested in the problem. And yeah. what you see over the course of the film is that one tiny little model mm. become a bigger model become something that we're testing in the abstract, mm. become something that we're testing with real planes, and now real pilots have got to figure out a way mm. to actually make these weird conditions work yeah. and solve these, these problems until they're finally doing it. It's just one nugget of an idea that gradually becomes more no. real and more tricky as the film progresses. That's really suspenseful. It's really, su it's really suspenseful. It's really exciting. And I appreciate that it's one single straight line. Yeah. Uh, in another film, they might try to make it a little bit more movie-like. Like, he's not working on the problem when they go to his house to find him. It turns out he's working on something else to establish his character a little bit. And there's this whole bit about how he has to be talked into it, and there's the refusal to the call, and there's all that yeah. hero's journey bullshit. Uh, this one? No. We have a mission. Here are the people who worked on it, and here's how they did it. It's almost documentary-like. Yeah. Uh, they did add a little bit of bureaucratic pushback for the movie. In reality, uh, there really wasn't that much struggle to get this idea greenlit mm -hmm. uh, by you know the defense department. But in the movie, there's a lot of people who think, should this work? Should we deny him funding? Should we test this out more? Just to give it a little bit more. A little, like, bit, yeah, little bit more will it. Yeah, the, the thing is, this is a true story, and it's so inherently dramatic. You don't need to add extra drama. Not it's unnecessary. Lot, no. And I feel like if you watch Star Wars, all of the drama stuff happens before the big bombing run. Yeah. Like, all, all the, the relationships are all established. What's at stake has already been established. So when we get time to the big action sequence, we can focus on just the action. And by the time we're getting that sort of big model... And everybody's sort of like giving the briefing about what the pilots are going to do. You're going to get in your ships. You're going to fly down this trench and you're going to bomb that hole. Right. We can only, that's all we need to focus on now. Right. Well, and, there's, and there's not, I guess there is some cross cutting in there, but it's, that's what we remember is this yeah. big sort of exciting dog. Well, and there's cross cutting in, in Star Wars as well, where they're doing mm -hmm. the big uh, bombing run, trying to shoot at the exhaust port. Uh, and then we cut back to Leia and the other rebels, like in their command room, but listening, trying to hear what's yeah, going on. But, but that's it's all part of the same mission. Exactly. Point. We're, um, not, we're not stopping that mission to focus on too much else. And there's something that I think gets something a little bit overlooked, or at least did before uh, Rogue One came out, mm. which is that uh, Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope, mm. uh, was very much built like those kind of World War II movies. There is a strategic thing we have to do. Mm -hmm. There is a plan. There is microfilm. Yeah. <laughs> and in, it's, it's what we need in order to just make this one it's very specific mm. military victory. It's not about winning the whole war. Mm -hmm. 
they don't win the whole war. Right. It's actually just, for the Empire, it's kind of a minor setback, which I want to get to in a minute because that's mm. actually relevant to the film. Um, but uh, it is a key victory in terms of morale, in mm. terms of saving lives in the immediate. And, yeah, but it's all about these plans. We've got plans. We know how to do this one very specific thing that will really mm. strike a blow at the Empire. We've never really struck, struck that much of a blow before. Mm. And then when you look at Rogue One, a movie that you don't like very much and I have problems with, but mm. I kind of like. Um, that's also very much a World War II movie as well. And I guarantee you that the people who saw that movie had seen the Dan Busters because Mads Mikkelsen's character, as far as I'm concerned, is pretty much Michael Redgrave in this movie. He's very mild, very mm -hmm. soft-spoken, very smart, loves his family. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it's his big idea that they have to steal. He's the one who actually engineered a flaw in the Death Star in the first place that could yeah, which, be exploited in order to make the Star Wars version of the Dan Busters. Which, which I don't like. But I, uh, I, it's, think, it's, I think it's not a good idea. I think, I think Rogue One makes too big, idea, too big a thing out of the original movie's MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. uh, but whatever. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a doomed men on a mission story. It is the Star Wars version of the Dirty Dozen. Mm. I have issues with it, but I do think when it does things right, it's actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Moving on. My point is, it influenced more than just the original film. Um, so, yeah. So, we got a lot of these stories of just scientists trying to make mm. this dam-busting technology work. And it, it's actually really interesting because when this movie came out, the the dam-busting technology, the, the skipping a bomb across the water, mm. was still technically a government secret. Like, the exact way they did it. And one of the things they had to do when they showed footage of them dropping a bomb and it skipping across the water, they had to add visual effects to cover up things involved in that process that were considered a military secret. Like, there's, like, a backspin on that thing that is the only reason why it works. They couldn't talk about it in the movie. But when they filmed it, they showed it. And they're like, oh, shit. So they had to... So you'll see the bomb is actually a bit kind of black and blotchy because they just kind of scratched it out with a pen. Directly onto the film strip, and yeah, yeah. It's really neat. I love the special effects in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's 1955. They're com Comparatively, they're not very sophisticated. But at but, the uh, time, they're very ambitious. Yeah, there, there's like a lot, of, there's a really great uh, sort of... Um, um, like overlay of an explosion over the dam when they finally blow up the dams because this is history. They know, you know they blow up the dams, um, and the pacing is just straight through the roof. Yeah, it never slows down. It's always head down, mission forward, and it's always ramping up. Yeah, it gets faster gonna... and faster and faster as the film starts. Very slow, yeah. mm -hmm. and by the end, when we're on that, the, the last like action sequence is like the last half hour of the movie, and it's great and it's yeah. intense. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Um, no, I love all of that. You talk about uh, the visual effects and the cinematography. The special effects photography were done by Gilbert Taylor. Now, how do you know Gilbert Taylor? How do I know Gilbert Taylor? He was a cinematographer for Star Wars. <laughs> so it, it's, Lucas it's picked a him bit, out yeah. very specifically. Uh, he, so also, yeah. he also did Doctor Strangelove, A Hard Day's Night, Repulsion, was, The was Omen. Gonna he's going to mention Doctor Strangelove. He's um, a big, big, big cinematographer. Yeah, he's, he's an important figure in film history. The parallels to Doctor Strangelove are pretty obvious um, <laughs> between Dan Busters and Doctor Strangelove. Doctor Strangelove was like nine years later, but yeah. um, oh, such a good movie! It's yeah, the, the sort of the whole idea of the the planes and all of the aerial footage. I wish Star Wars was more inspired by Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? Streak like that, like like the, they they drop the 
bomb and it like skips off and they miss and they're like, oh shit. And then we have Mon Mothma spin around. Look, we're going to die. <laughs> but if we move into caves and start fucking, <laughs> then maybe the rebellion will survive after 50 years. And then there, we have that, that fish looking guy, Admiral Akbar. Well, who are we going to choose who we're going to meet with? <laughs> well, 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 uh, Gonna choose who we choose. What are we gonna eat down there? Fish. <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> Sorry, there's my. It's a good bet. All off the cuff. Improvised Star Wars Doctor Strange love bit. All off the cuff. <laughs> Dip it in brown. Very very there nice. Um, yeah. So, uh, but it was also I want to talk about the director. It was directed by Michael Anderson, who is not a director who is like a household name. Mm. He's kind of only known, even though he was very prolific, he's kind of only known for three films and three hit films. Mm. Uh, he was known for The Dam Busters, which was the biggest British movie of 1955. Huge hit. <laughs> uh, he was known for one year later uh, coming out with Around the World in 80 Days. It's one best picture at the Academy Awards. Yep. It is often considered one of the worst films that ever won best picture yeah. at the Academy Awards. However, we recently rewatched this for another podcast and... Um, it's slower than it should be. Mm. I know it's supposed to take 80 days, but still. Mm. Um, it is a handsome production. Like, I would love to see Michael Anderson's Around the World in 80 Days on a big screen. He understands mm. the importance of grandeur mm. and framing and making it just this kind of really just uh, alluring and gigantic travel log. Mm. When that movie is good, it's really good. When that uh. movie is bad, it's kind of tedious. And, and, and more than a little racist, but what are you going to do? Uh, which brings us to another problem with the Dam Busters. Um, okay, this was this is a f- film made in 1955. Yes, and it's and, and it's, it takes it, place in 1943. And this is an actual thing. This is not yeah. something so that made is, up for the movie. This, this is, is reality. So this is all based on real racist people in the 1940s in England. Yeah. So, and it was made in 1955 when there was still a lot of open racism in England. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that England had a problem with this. This is a global problem. Yep. America had it even worse. Yep. (laughs) I'm not trying to say anybody's better than anybody here. Although even at the time, Uh, this part was edited for America. Even in America, they're like, oh yeah, no. Understandably so. There's... there's Okay, let's just let's let me, let me set the stage. Right. <laughs> there is a character in the film based on a a, a, mm. a real person whose name is hold on I had had it right in front of me I didn't want it. Guy Gibson. Okay, Guy Gibson is one of the pilots who made the dam busting run. Uh, not everyone who made the dam busting run survived. In fact, quite a few did not. It was incredibly mm. dangerous, and a lot of people died. And Guy Gibson would actually end up dying only a few years later. He died in his twenties. Uh, you know, very dangerous line of work. Mm. And we're introduced to this character. It's about like 30 minutes into the movie. Thus far, it's all been about Michael Redgrave trying to see if this theory would even work. Mm-hmm. And now, finally, it's time to start recruiting some pilots to try to make sure it's a, it, it can be a practical reality. It doesn't mm-hmm. just work in the abstract. It can be done. The focus of the film, the, the character through whom we see the majority of the pilot's experience is the guy who was in charge of it, Guy Gibson. Mm-hmm. Guy Gibson is introduced landing a plane... Taking off his helmet, his air apparatus, giving a little stretch, getting out of the cockpit, (laughs) and then we cut to we see off like off to the side. There's a guy who is standing there with a dog, Mm. 
And then we cut to Guy Gibson big, turning. Big, big black dog. Yeah. Seeing the dog. And you know that scene in Star Wars after uh, they destroy the Death Star and Mark Hamill gets uh, out of his X-Wing and he sees Leia. Mm. And if memory serves, he actually says, Carrie! Because it's mm. Carrie Fisher. And for some reason left that in the movie. That or I'm hearing it wrong, but it always sounds like he's saying Carrie. But <laughs> he's it, he's not. But yeah, I know. It's, it sounds like he's excited. He just got through a mission. He's excited to see someone. Mm-hmm. He's calling a camera. It's this exact shot from the Dam Busters. Except in the Dam Busters, when Guy Gibson, and this is the first thing we hear him say after like one quick line of dialogue in a cockpit, him yelling off screen the N-word. <laughs> That's the name of his dog. His dog <laughs> is named, and I'm not gonna say it yeah. because why would I? But his dog is named the N-word, and it's called out a lot because... Clears a bell. It's it's a little shocking. Because that's the actual dog's name. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the dog is actually kind of important to the story on a couple of levels. The dog died the day they did the damn busting run and was Mm -hmm. buried while he was in the air. No. Because he figured if he died, he would be buried at the same time as the dog. At least that's how the st- that's how the movie plays it. Mm. I don't know about the actual motivations. Um, but also, the dog's name was the code word for if they had done the job well. So they have to say it over and over and over again. Mm. And you're watching this movie, and in many respects, this is impeccable World War II filmmaking. Really strong acting, amazing, incredible, amazing action, incredible yeah. action, great structure, and right at the heart of it. Is this just blithe racism? <laughs> and it's really gross. And it's something that they've had to deal with. Again, it was redubbed in America. The dog's name was something different in America. Mm-hmm. And um, in the 2000s, if memory mm-hmm. serves, uh, Peter Jackson uh, got the rights to the books that this is based on, or one of mm-hmm. them. And he wanted to do a new version of the Dam Busters. Mm-hmm. Initially, he couldn't because Mel Gibson had the rights, and Mel Gibson decided not to do it, and Peter Jackson picked it up. And guess who wrote the screenplay for that version that hasn't been made yet? Stephen Fry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard heard Stephen Fry wrote a screenplay, or Mm -hmm. or was writing a screenplay, for a new, updated version of The Dam Busters. would be a historical epic told by Peter Jackson. Sounds like a neat idea, but they were talking about how, yeah, we got to change the name of that dog. There's literally no no way... I don't care, and the the dog has his own Wikipedia page. Yeah, and, and but it's just, it's just shocking on, to hear like, on it's, the Wikipedia it's page. Terrible. Yeah, on the Wikipedia page, they try to uh, not, like excuse it a little bit because the uh-huh. N word actually has a, like a, a longer etymology than you know its racist connotations and. You know, uh, look, look, I don't, we don't, I don't buy it. No, we don't, I don't we buy don't it. For buy. One it's second. like, okay, yeah, okay, black dogs were given that name long before it was used as a racial epithet. You know what? The racial epithet has changed the meaning of that word. We can't even say it anymore. Even and, at uh, the time, people knew what that meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really gross. Now, uh, it's it's the kind of just casual racism that you often forget about when you watch old movies. Yeah, I you, just... you've you've said before that it's kind of painful to realize that you're watching a lot of your favorite movies from the 1930s and they're all frothy and fun and all the characters are white and you kind of have to sit for a second and come to terms with the fact that the characters and probably the actors too were all blazingly racist just because mm-hmm. that was the ethos of the time yeah whether it was uh uh you know even just compared to today mm-hmm. people of the 30s 
especially white people of the 30s, probably more racist than the typical one of us. It's the culture in which they grew up in. There were some people who were trying to be better. There were a lot of people who just weren't. Well, and no, so I, people I, who just, they're racist because that's the culture. It's like, oh, we, well, this, these are the words we use. We don't think about this yeah. a lot when we watch our older movies because a lot of older movies don't have a lot of people of color in them. Mm. And if they do, there's often a message, like a progressive message, but not necessarily. Mm. The, uh, I first really started, like, just being grossed out by this. There's um, a Fred McMurray movie called Remember the Night with him and Barbara Stanwyck. It's a Christmas movie. Right. She shoplifts. He's her lawyer, and he's trying to get her off for Christmas. And um, I'm watching it, and frankly, it's not very good. But mm. I know some people really like it, but I wasn't really feeling it. But then there's a, this little throwaway bit with Fred McMurray and like his valet, uh, who is a person of color. Mm. And Fred McMurray, who has been perfectly nice and respectable and just a typical everyday movie protagonist, just says racist stuff. Mm. And you're just like, oh, that's right. Most people in these movies are probably racist. Mm. If you don't hear them or see them, do not racist things. Yeah, if you see no evidence of the contrary, they're probably mm. racist. Or the filmmakers don't want the many people in America who are racist to not feel like they could relate to them. So they're just mm. not touching the subject mm. at all. Right, right, right. Um, and it's really... Mm. Really hard to watch it's, some old movies now. It's 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 shocking. Yeah, yeah. there's uh, the the treatment of of non-white, just all non-white characters. Yeah. Essentially, was was really painful. Yeah, a lot the of exception all, here or there, yeah, but when, rare, mm, rare, rare, rare. Yeah, when we've been watching a lot of uh, a lot of the best picture nominees from the 1930s, and when they try to act progressive, it still feels a little wincy. Yeah, uh, it's like, oh no, this is well, you know, that what is that, progressive for 1934. What was but, that um, one that Douglas Sirk remade? We just watched it. It was about. Um, hmm. uh, 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 a, a white, a white uh, widow, and her. Uh, uh, oh gosh, and, a, um, and her black uh, a servant, yeah. and they team up to start a flapjack business. Yeah, but yeah. then her daughter wants to pass for white, and that kind of becomes the main storyline for a while. Yeah. And the movie is trying to have progressive attitudes, but it just comes from this sort of just this racist mindset to begin with right, and it can no yeah. matter how progressive it's trying to be hmm. it started wrong yeah it started yeah. wrong-headed and hmm. you can just only get so far away from that um so hmm. the damn busters is mostly not about that <laughs> but every single time the dog and there's like people in this movie like patrick mcguin is in this movie for one scene he has like one line of dialogue and he's just talking to the dog Patrick McGowan from fa- the prisoner, very famous actor. Yeah. Uh, you might know if more younger filmmaker uh, film fans might remember him as the king from Braveheart. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also the judge in A Time to Kill, which I think might have been his last performance. But a great actor. He was mm-hmm. in the. If you've never seen The Prisoner, oh my god, see The Prisoner. It's incredible. <laughs> uh, so he's in this. Robert Shaw, I believe, has a small role in this. Um, but uh, yeah, so every once in a while, it just sort of shocks you up, like, oh god, oh, I almost got invested. <laughs> Stupid racists. Yeah, um, I've, I've read a lot of old stories. I've seen a lot of old movies. I've I've watched a lot of old cartoons where mm. a lot of racist language and racist stereotyping was used. Dumbo. Um, yeah, Dumbo. Well, not just Dumbo's. Even more obvious stuff. If you watch some of the uh, like Warner Brothers shorts, oh, yeah. like you know Tex Avery or or uh, you know Bob McKimson would direct. Or maybe not Bob McKimson, but yeah, they would use like blackface imagery. Yeah, in a lot of these early cartoons and. Uh, like somebody would be blown up and they'd 
they'd be this blackface stereotype all of a sudden. And that yeah. was just a joke. Terrible. Uh, for mainstream audiences back in the, the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Uh, and, and they don't show those very often, do they? No, I'm I'm happy that when Warner Brothers was putting out all of the shorts on DVD, like mm-hmm. a bunch of box sets, they uh, they put all of like the most racist ones in one set. Yeah, and they said they had disclaimers. Yeah. yeah, and there's a disclaimer. It's like there's these were made at the time. Attitudes were different at the time, and if we were to censor this, it would be like pretending these attitudes never existed and it's more mm-hmm. useful to have them than to not. Yeah, and they reframed yeah. them as sort of historical archiving mm-hmm. rather than casual mm-hmm. entertainment, which, uh, which is something you would need. Which you would need, and I think that's an important thing to say. I think it's a good thing to have a record, even though these things are really racist. Yeah. I'm saying this as a white guy, so what I'm saying is probably completely misguided. Uh, I'd rather have that than what Disney is doing, which is just ignore this altogether and pretend that everything was hunky-dory from the start. Right. I don't uh, want Disney to just throw these things on Disney+, Plus because yeah. I don't think it does anyone much good to stumble upon these. Yeah. But they, they should be available at least yeah. for people to view them if they're trying to look at the history of film. Yeah, yeah. Beyond but, that, though, and you always um, need to take it in context. And, and yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of racist language. There's a lot of racist imagery. And uh, it's it's all presented in like the most casual possible fashion because yeah. that's just what society was. Uh, the dog had a racist name. Yeah. Uh, I'm... But I'm comparing this to something like the works of H.P. Lovecraft, mm. who also gave pets racist names. Uh, if, if you remember the story, The Rats in the Walls, there's a black cat whose name is also the N-word. Uh, oh, you're and, right. I was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. However, if you know anything about H.P. Lovecraft, he was virulently racist. Extremely. He was, you know, and you read his stories and they talk about, you know, I went out to the hills to talk to like these mongrels and people of the lesser races like jesus christ dude yeah it's really it's like like yeah hp lovecraft was just horrendously horrendously racist from a place of hate and disgust yeah uh not to sugarcoat anything here Mm -hmm. i'm watching the damn busters and at least not getting outward hate and disgust the movie doesn't exist just to be cruel this is a thing that was actually real that was actually Mm. a part of it and depicting it as it was Mm. was not considered completely socially unacceptable at the time the movie was made right it is completely socially unacceptable now and Mm. at the very least when you're watching the film Mm. it is incredibly jarring to hear that word yelled out so casually mm. and then not by a villainous character. Yeah. Uh, oh. So we just, we have to talk about it. It's really weird. It was Imitation of Life. <laughs> like, that was uh, the movie we were thinking of. That was the movie we were thinking of earlier. That yeah. was the remade by Douglas Sirk and yeah. originally not with Best Picture. Uh, yeah, that wasn't an H.P. Lovecraft story. That's a movie. H.P. <laughs> um, Lovecraft's Imitation of Life. Yeah. It was almost alive. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, though, that is makes the Dam Busters like a little less than great. I and, mean, you know, you're looking at movies that are about history, mm-hmm. and they always get something wrong. And in the case of a movie that was essentially a propaganda film, the war was over, but, you know, this is Britain it's, puffing yeah. itself up a bit. This is considered a big, uh, you know, public relations victory. Which, which, I mean, I'll just say it, propaganda can be exhilarating. Yeah. Mm. No, it absolutely can be. I mean, like, what, what is Star Wars if not propaganda by the rebels? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of. But um, the actual mission that the Dam Busters went on mm-hmm. 
wasn't the uh, uh, Stone Cold victory that they made it out to be in the film that changed the tide of the war. In fact, uh, a lot of people have looked back on the actual event uh, and have said that it was arguably a waste of time and resources for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, it could only be done once. Because after they did it once, the Germans figured out, oh, they did this to us, mm. and now that will never happen again because they took precautions against it. They didn't do any follow-up raids to actually finish the job of destroying everything. Mm. And as a result, the Germans were actually able to put everything back together again and restart production within like weeks as opposed to months. Mm. So it was, at best, a stopgap. Also, and this is probably most important, we talk a lot about like the British pilots who died during this, and they did, and that's very tragic. Uh, tons of civilian casualties. Mm. They flooded towns. Ton hundreds, that hundreds, was, that, hundreds that, that of people. Was, it was the stated purpose. It was the stated yeah. purpose, but today, uh -huh. as is my understanding, and I'm not a historian, I'm not a political expert, but based on my research, it is my understanding that according to the Geneva Convention, blowing up dams is now considered a war crime. Mm. Because it goes beyond the military yeah. effort and it can actually destroy lives of non-combatants. So, we're watching people commit a war crime. Yeah, well... And they, I get it. It was, it was the time when they were doing everything they can to stop fascism and the Nazis yeah. and good... But the specific thing is not a cut-and-dry military... Mm -hmm. Achievement. There's actually a lot of gray areas here. The movie has absolutely no interest in discussing. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and again, the, the Star whole, Wars is the same way. They destroyed uh, the Death Star. They just built another one. They just built it. Yeah. And how, yeah. And, and how many? George people, Lucas actually followed that. Like, and, they, and how many civilians were were on the Death Star? Look at yeah. what Kevin Smith wrote about. Smith he talked about all the innocent independent contractors who were dying on mm. the Death Star. Death Star is the size of a moon. There's probably a ton of like all those stormtroopers' families mm. think, probably died. Do, do, do you think a stormtrooper knows how to install a toilet main? Well, Finn did, but <laughs> so. He was he was a plumber. Mm -hmm. So this is actually like actually part of Star Wars. And then like after they destroy the Death Star in episode four, episode five begins with the Empire as strong, if not stronger than ever, and the mm -hmm. and the and the rebels on the run. Yeah, well, yeah, the so it wasn't the end of the war. The, it was the just ending this of one yeah, cool The ending of Star Wars, it was the end of the war, but then yeah, the Empire strikes back. Oh, they're still around. Yeah, well, if there would only been one movie we could have established it. Also yeah. the end of the movie of uh, the end of Star Wars has this almost graduation march kind of thing. Yeah, everybody like, gets medals. And everybody yeah. gets medals. And that's very much the ending of Dan Busters as well. Mm -hmm. The score to Dan Busters is considered rather iconic by some people. Uh, it's, again, it didn't really wasn't that huge a cultural sensation in America. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people to whom that score is very it, it, it infused in the bones, very rousing. No, and the, the it, final it, it march in Star Wars evokes the Dan Busters march very clearly. It, it reminded me not of Star Wars, but of Thunderbirds. The, the Jerry Anderson <laughs> score. There's another movie directed by Michael Anderson. Oh. Uh, of memory serves. I want to make sure I'm, I'm looking it up. Uh, I want to make sure I'm not getting this wrong. Because Michael Anderson, again, he directed uh, The Dan Busters, Around the World in 80 Days. He did Logan's Run, which of course mm. is a huge uh, cultural cachet. He did Orca. Which, which is, is a piece of crap. Yeah. But a really entertaining piece of crap. Mm -hmm. uh, he did the Quiller Memorandum, which is actually quite good. But the movie I'm thinking of... Mm -hmm. Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze. <laughs> Have you ever seen Doc Savage, 
The Man of Bronze. I have been so tempted to rent it so many times from my local video store just because it has that really great poster of this big bronze man standing on his own name. It's a good poster. It's a George Powell joint. So, well, he produced yeah. it. But yeah, Michael yeah. Anderson directed it. Uh, Doc Savage was... Uh, and a couple of years before Star Wars, it was an attempt to do pulp filmmaking large and on the big screen. And did it, he yeah, beat it George out. Lucas to it by a couple of years. Yeah, 75 it came out. Yeah. Doc Savage. Uh, but Doc Savage, the movie, sucks a lot. <laughs> like, it's really bad. And one of the reasons why it is bad, mm. and, and, and beyond uh, just the writing is clunky and, and cheesy and the plot is all over the place, mm. Uh, and it ends with like curing the bad guy of his villainy by giving him a lobotomy heroically, and I'm like, that's I know that's from the comics, but that's gross. Oh my goodness! But the reason oh, I'll get to your oh my goodness in a second. Yeah, yeah. But the reason why the movie is interminable is that much like the Dam Busters, which like kind of like the music like rotates around this like march theme. Doc Savage, the almost the entire score is by. Uh, is uh, is John Philip Sousa marches. <laughs> it's. All the time, John Phillips. Yeah, John Phillips Souza. I'm not a fan. I, I would go so far as to say a blight upon music. Oh, I can't handle John Phillips Souza. I can't. Clearly, when was the last time you yeah. put on a John Phillips Souza record? Every time I watch Monty Python's Flying Circus, I hear John Phillips Souza. Okay. All right, that's the it, one exception. The Liberty Bell March, which is the theme song to Monty Python's Flying Circus. I will give Circus. you the Liberty Bell March. Uh, I will give you that, but beyond that, I no was, John Philip Sousa in this household. I was in a marching band briefly mm -hmm. in high school, so yeah. there's a little bit of affection there, you know? Really? I would have assumed there'd and, be extra hatred. My dad plays tuba and sousaphone. Wow. And has also marched in marching bands, so second generation Sousa fan. Oh, God. So I... I I do make apologies for this. Then you might <laughs> love Doc Savage, because it's nothing but... Mm. John Philip Sousa. Yeah. But yeah, there are certain kinds of music you can't mainline. I thought it was really fun once to get a CD of nothing but like circus calliope music. <laughs> you can take maybe 90 seconds of that before you want to blow your brains out. Exactly. <laughs> and oh, then here's like 90 straight minutes of it. it what was, was your crazy. oh my God about? Uh, it turns out Michael Anderson directed a really notorious 1972 film called Pope Joan. I actually I this didn't one, actually. look it up. Um, okay. There was a legend about a, a pope that was a woman in disguise. Oh, yeah, I've heard that story. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, she was made pope. So <laughs> and they made a movie yeah. about her starring uh, Liv Woolman and Olivia de Havilland and Franco Nero. And it was uh, lost for a long time. Mm. It was one of those things that you'd see in, like, Premiere Magazine. There's, like, right. these little sidebars. Also, it's this notorious lost film called Pope Joan that nobody yeah. ever talks about. And it was really, really bad. And it's about this uh, woman who disguised herself as Pope and the, the romances and the drama of her life. And I think it wasn't released on home video in the U.S. until, like, the 2000s. But, yeah, it was, it was one of these films that was talked of in hushed tones. Mm. And I tried to find for years and years and years. And by the time it came out, I had lost interest. <laughs> so I still haven't seen it. <laughs> Uh, now yeah. I'm interested. That sounds uh, fascinating. Man, Liv Ullman. Um, okay, so... I forget what we were talking about. 
podcasting. We're talking about Doc Savage. And, yeah, Doc uh, Savage. Mike, the, the anyway, career Mike, of Michael Anderson. Michael Anderson. He's an interesting filmmaker in that he had like three mega hits and a lot of stuff nobody talks about. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like um, John Turtletaub. <laughs> where there's like two really big John mm-hmm. Turley. He did like the National mm-hmm. Treasure movies mm-hmm. and a couple of big hits. And then everything else is like, oh yeah, he did Sorcerer's Apprentice. That's okay. Or, or Gore Verbinski. Or, uh, I think Gore Verbinski is a little more interesting. He at least has a signature style. That's true. Like That's John Turtletop is one of those directors who he's a good director. I would never say he's a bad filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the films he makes just, they're like two and a half, three star movies. And that's all they want to be. Yeah. And when you're done, you're just like, oh, yeah. But you would never talk about, like, oh, who are the great auteurs of our time. Mm. No one's going to say John Turtletaub. Or, or Joe, Joe Johnston. You know, those, no, those guys. Joe Johnston, I think, is a little better than you're giving him credit for. But, like... Oh, he, he did The Rocketeer. I like I mean, The Rocketeer. Yeah, The Rocketeer. He did First Avenger was really, really yeah, good. He did... So. Uh, didn't he do... Uh, um, did Honey, Trump the Kids? Yeah, Honey, Trump the Kids. Well, maybe it was John Turtletaub. <laughs> I think he did Honey, I Shrunk. I know, there's a lot of like directors who just had these long and prolific careers and just, for whatever reason, a couple of huge hits. And Michael Anderson was one of them. Uh, the Dan Busters... Okay, if you can get past the historical stuff that they're glossing aside, and I get it, it's a propaganda film. If you can get past the bits with the dog, which are intensely distracting and off-putting, but only a very small part of the movie. The Dan Busters rips... Like, The Dan Busters is an incredibly well-structured, smart, exciting, and, for the time, technically impeccable motion picture. Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely 100% understandable, believable, and respectable that George Lucas would be inspired by the way that this film not only shoots the sequence of low-flying ships in narrow spaces... Being attacked, it's in the complete mm. uphill, you know, struggle where we're completely outnumbered and outgunned, and there are shots of the turrets and stores that are exact same shots as the shots of the turrets and the dam busters, and a lot of things that are lifted directly from it. It makes sense that he would be inspired by it, and it also makes sense that he would be inspired by the idea of we're going to focus a lot of the story around a really complicated, tricky plan to take down the enemy. Mm. Um, and it was going to be the whole focal point of the end of the movie. Like the last, like, I don't know, 20 minutes or so of Star Wars is the Death Star run. And the last, mm-hmm. like, 30 minutes of the Dam Busters is the Dam Busting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like, um, depending on who you talk to, they'll say that Star Wars is powerful because of the characters. Somebody like Luke is something, is a character that everybody can relate to. It's <sighs> this, like, archetypal character, that this thing that everybody can sort of rally around. I actually never related that much to uh, Luke. Or, or if not Luke, Han Solo is kind of roguish. You kind of want to be him. I wanted to be yeah. Han Solo, but I never really... I related you know, or, to C-3PO. Or, you know, you want to be a ruler like Princess Leia, who's just going to grab a grab a gun and start shooting bad guys. No, all of these people you know, were cool, and I wanted to hang out yeah. with them. But, like, I here's the thing. I think uh, uh, relating to a protagonist, mm-hmm. especially in, like, blockbuster entertainment is of less importance than wanting to hang out with the protagonist. Okay. <laughs> I want to believe them. I want to know them well enough to be their friend and actually genuinely like them and care about their struggle. But it's more important to me that I want to hang out with them than be them because mm. I have low self-esteem. Well, I, and I, never, I, in these movies, yeah. would not be this success. I would not be doing the same stuff that they're doing. I, I never did that with the characters on screen. It's like, yeah. oh, that's me. You know, I, yeah, I never imagining me. You know, I, I never, never did that. I never did that. 
Yeah. Like, like, like I, would, I can I relate to a, some characters more than others. I would read a character like Spider-Man and I would think, oh, wouldn't it be fun if I had Spider-Man's powers? Sure. But I'm not thinking, would, wouldn't it be great if I was a, a struggling photographer in New York with a secret identity? Who accidentally uh, killed his uncle, like, surreptitiously. Yeah, like, I don't I don't imagine being Peter Parker. Like, I imagine, imagine having Spider-Man powers. Like, can you imagine wanting... I understand wanting to, like, dress like Batman and have all the cool Batman mm-hmm. stuff. But can you imagine wanting to be Batman? Like, yeah, I want to be Batman. I want my I parents, want parents to be, to be dead. dead. What? I, I, I had this weird realization when, when my son started going to school at age two. And uh-huh. you know, they, they, we were told we we're not allowed... The Kids weren't allowed to wear superhero stuff. Okay, because kids look at a super to like a superhero and a supervillain fighting. They don't make any sense, kind of moral uh, distinction between they just those think characters. They think two guys in weird outfits punching each other. So yeah. they they, they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily yeah. enact that. And I did hit each other. It's, I had um, many a black eye that I had to explain to my parents. Yeah, because you were playing superhero. Yeah, and, uh, and we explained it was something else. But I I, I had this weird realization. It's like I, I, you know one of the, one of his classmates is really into Spider Man. It's like I want to be Spider Man. Well, son, if you're Spider Man. I, I'm dead. That's right. Uh, I'm your dad. I'm dead. It's like, okay, I want to be Batman. Well, if you're Batman, I'm dead. Okay, I want to be Superman. Well, if you're Superman, I'm dead. <laughs> there's no, there's no. There's any, I, I want to be, I be Wonder Woman. Okay. I don't exist. I, I was never, <laughs> you're made out of clay. <laughs> <laughs> there's no men in Wonder Woman's universe. Yeah, there's, there's no like. Which is fine, but like, if you. <laughs> Raises questions yeah. for the dads in the room. If, okay, I want to be the Punisher. No, no! <laughs> Again, if, if you know I, the histories of any of these characters, I don't need to see myself. I think this is a problem, actually, with empathy and how we treat yeah. it in art and how we encourage people to treat it in art. Yeah. The idea that you're supposed to empathize with people if you see yourself in them. Yeah. I don't need to see myself in somebody to empathize with them. I just need to see them as a human being. Yeah. I need to see that they are not like, you know, a Bugs Bunny cartoon character. Like, I don't feel bad for Bugs yeah. if he. I mean, Bugs is usually not the victim of these things, but if Bugs Bunny fell off a cliff, I know Bugs Bunny's going to be okay, mm. and he's going to bounce back. Yeah. It's more of an Elmer Fudd thing to do, but whatever. Uh, but, like, a, a, a person, if you want me to take them seriously, you want me to care about them, I just have to believe that they're real. Mm. And I want to like them enough that I hope they succeed. I want to understand them, but, yeah, yeah I don't want to... S- if they're a protagonist, uh, I want to care that they succeed. I want to be like, they deserve it. Yeah, you go get them, Rocky. Like, that's why Rocky is so powerful. You, you, Whether or not you see yourself in Rocky, Rocky, by the end of that movie, he at least deserves to go the distance. Yeah, whether or, or not he deserves to win. Or, like, or you know, if, sometimes it's an anti-hero. It's like, yeah, I want Hannibal Lecter to get away. I like him. It's yeah. like, but he's going to eat a brain. Like a human brain. Yeah. He's going to feed a brain to a little kid on a plane. But it's I terrible. get him. Like, I understand, like... Yeah, why he's doing yeah. that? Like I, I, yeah, that's the thing. You understand because Clary Starling gets to know him well enough to understand his. Like when Hannibal Lecter like escapes in Silence of the Lambs, and um, uh, Casey Lemons asks hmm. Jodie Foster, "Aren't you worried he's going to come after you?" And Jodie Foster says, Does. "No, he think that was rude." Yeah, yeah. So you, <laughs> and you, she's, you she's right. She knows him well enough to know that he has standards, that he has rules by which even Hannibal Lecter would abide, and that makes him real. That makes him someone that you understand. And so, although at the end, when he's going to have an old friend for dinner, that's evil, but at the same time, that guy tortured Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) I get why he's on this journey, and I'm with the story. Mm. And that actually kind of relates to the Dan Busters in a way, because although this is surely not the intention of the filmmakers... Again, we know that at the very least, on a casual level, and 
I don't want to cast any dispersions upon someone who was a real person, but mm. for all I know, the person was even more racist than that. But it's the real dog, so there's at least some level of racism involved mm. here. Uh, although we know that about this guy, he is still trying to stop the Nazis. So at the very least, we want the mission to go well. So yeah. we do have a vested interest in it, and the movie is strong enough that we still care about the mission, even though this one guy clearly, on some level, is not someone we'd want to hang out with in real life. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, cinema. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like other mm. characters in cinema I actually do. Re- I actually do relate to Spider Man, even though my my parents, well, were alive. Mm. Not dad, not so much anymore. Um, but uh, I always related to his guilt complex. No, oh, because he, he feels guilted into doing the right thing. It's not that he feels guilted. It's just that he feels that if he doesn't do the right thing, he couldn't handle it. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not that he feels that other people are guilting him. He's guilting himself. He takes so mm-hmm. much responsibility onto himself that any failure is his fault. Yeah. It's not life. It's not you tried. Mm-hmm. It's no, there's no excuse. If I didn't do the right thing all the time... I'm a failure as a human being. And as someone who is intensely neurotic a lot of the time, I got that. Yeah. And so when Spider-Man has these moral complications in his life, particularly in the comics, but in the, also in the Sam Raimi movies, that's when I was really invested in him because I understood that. Mm. I miss that part of the character so much. (laughs) You wrote a great series of tweets about how the Marvel Spider-Man is kind of, Lost you, yeah. And how it yeah, just doesn't really like, connect anymore it just, emotionally. It doesn't have any. Just like I like Tom on, Holland, yeah. I just don't know if I care about the character anymore. Well, I'm, I'm convinced people get, gathered around Tom Holland because Tom Holland's cute. Well, uh, he's, I think he's a good Spider-Man. I think with the right script, he'd be a great Spider-Man. If yeah. you put Tom Holland in the Sam Raimi movies, he'd be great. I'm sure he'd be fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <clears> like he'd, I, maybe even better than Tobey yeah. Maguire, who I like, but he's a little sleepy. Tobey Maguire. He's a little sleepy. I remember uh, there was some rumors that uh, Tobey Maguire was going to drop out before Spider-Man 2. No, he was going to be replaced by Jake Gyllenhaal. By Jake Gyllenhaal, who who ended up being in a Spider-Man movie. But... um, and they were also going to call it, they were going to change the title. They were going to have a new Spider Man. They were going to call it The Amazing Spider Man. Mm -hmm. It's going to star Jake Gyllenhaal, and they were going to go with the same script. That's, I mean, Spider Man 2 is one of the best of all superhero movies, but that's a better one. (laughs) (laughs) You think Jake Gyllenhaal would have been a better uh, Spider Man? I think it would have been better. And also, if you kind of accept it as, okay, this is. Now that we're past all that origin story stuff, that mm. and, but Sam Raimi's still having fun. Yeah. Would have been even better. Anyway. All right, so that's the Dan Busters. Uh, again, this is one of those uh, cl- uh, quote-unquote classic movies mm. that comes with a caveat. You know, they're oh. going to have to deal with some stuff. Here. But on its own, as a World War II movie, it is mm. very effectively yeah. made. And and you, you, can, you can also have a very interesting ethical discussion. Um, is, is it comfortable... To have a, an outwardly racist character be a hero who kills Nazis. Yeah. Like, what? what's the worst crime of this character? Uh, yeah. What's the, you know, does the heroism balance out the I evils? Ca- I kind of wish the movie had uh, confronted that rather than having to be yeah. so well, incidental. Un- like, unfortunately, it was made in 1955. Yeah. It was still a pretty racist time. So, it, it, and you can go to, um, uh, oh gosh, the... You can go to the dog's grave. Yeah, the dog's, uh, and, yeah. And the dog's, you know... The, Again, the na- real dog. The real dog, real racist name, and that name is in- inscribed on its tombstone right there, and it was considered kind of a symbol, this big sort of military mascot at the time, and... 
Yeah, you just visit the grave, and there it is. Just look down, and there's the N-word carved into marble on this this, uh, British military base, because that that was the time, and it's really quite unfortunate. But there it is. That's history. Well, uh, on the next episode of Episode Zero, Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing a big about-face. We have just talked about three films in a row that were, A, huge. Mm. Hidden Fortress was a big deal. Dan Busters was a big deal. The Flash Gordon serials were an incredibly big deal. And we're going to talk about more films that are well-known and popular, but we also want to talk about some of the films that inspired Star Wars that don't get a lot of press and in some respects are incredibly obscure. And what we are going to talk about is an experimental film directed by Arthur Lipset in 1963 that George Lucas has called one of his favorite films. It is called 2187. That's 21-87. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah. If, if you have a Prime you account, you can watch it. It's uh, 10 minutes. It's 10 minutes. It's mm. 10 minutes. It's, uh, uh, from what I understand, it's like sort of narrative free, but uh, even if that's not your jam, 10 minutes. Mm. You know, you can get through that pretty easily. Um, so we're going to talk about this very odd sounding film that I actually haven't watched yet and talk about the way that it has apparently inspired the creation of in Star Wars, of the Force. Yeah. Mm. The concept of the Force comes kind of. And, and we'll explore this because this is not one we're familiar with. Yeah, this is going to be um, a big discovery for us as well. Like, I'd seen first, a lot of these other things. Yeah, I ha- actually hadn't seen the Dam Busters, but I knew about it because of Star Wars. I'd seen um, some of it. It was on TV once I'd, or twice. I'd seen yeah. The Hidden Fortress a couple times. Uh, and fl- I was really Flash Gordon familiar Gordon with Flash Gordon. But uh, yeah, uh, this is going to be kind of a... A journey of discovery for me as well. Yeah, so this is really exciting. We hope you join us uh, next week for Star Wars Episode 02187. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you want to uh, uh, subscribe, we hope you do. Mm-hmm. If you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Together we are at Critic Acclaim. And, and if you want to contribute to the show, you get a ton of exclusive content in return. Uh, the Patreon is patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and over there we have a ton of exclusive shows including out of gas where we're reviewing every single episode of firefly one podcast per episode all our yesterdays where we're reviewing every single episode of star trek in production order we're currently on season two of the original series so mm-hmm. there's a lot of backlog already uh to catch up on binge if you want uh, we've got a new show uh, called Not on Disney Plus, where we're talking about all of the stuff that Disney is sweeping under the rug with their new streaming service. Mm. Uh, we, and we're talking like the old weird stuff, like the Parent Trap sequels that nobody talks about. Mm. Uh, what do we got? We got uh, uh, Only the Best, where we're talking about every film ever nominated for Best Picture. We got commentary tracks. We do hangouts with our, our top tier patrons. We got a lot of cool stuff over there. For everyone who currently subscribes on Patreon, we thank you. These shows would not exist without you, especially now in Mm -hmm. uh, these (laughs) tricky times. Uh, So really, really appreciate your contribution. It means the world to us. If you can afford to join in, you get exclusive stuff for it. We hope you do. If not, tell a friend if you Mm -hmm. like the show. If you don't like the show, well, I guess tell a friend it sucks. We don't want to be honest. Tell tell an enemy. (laughs) Fair enough. If you hate the show, tell it to me. And uh, have we figured out how we end this podcast yet? Uh, may the force be uh, live long and prosper. Your umbrella. May the force be your umbrella. Your umbrella.